Welcome to Detroit Opera's Opera Here podcast. This is Andrea Scobie and Arthur White with Detroit Opera. We are thrilled you have joined us today as we take a look at Giacomo Puccini's masterpiece, La Boheme, and speak with two stars from the production, which opens April 2nd and runs through April 10th at the Detroit Opera House. La Boheme opened the then new Detroit Opera House 26 years ago, and it's quite fitting we would call on Bohem again to welcome us back to the Opera House after a two-year interruption of performances brought on by the pandemic. Giacomo Puccini composed La Boheme from a libretto by Luigi Illica and Giuseppe Giocosa based on Scène de la Vie Boheme by Henri Mouget. The opera debuted in 1896 in Torino and is considered standard opera repertory. Operabase.com, which tracks worldwide performances of opera, lists it as the second most frequently performed opera in the world today. La Boheme, along with Mascagni's Cavalleria Rusticana, which opened our current season, ushered in a new style of opera known as Verismo. Verismo was a post-romantic, realistic style of opera, which rejected stories centered around royalty, the mythological and magical, and instead focused on stories of everyday people in their lives, which resulted in gritty plots full of sexuality and violence. At the end of the 19th century, social revolution was underway, Monarchies across Europe had less influence as democratically elected parliaments began to emerge. An emphasis on the living conditions of the majority now brought things like public education and an opportunity to travel via rail with the advancement of the Industrial Revolution. This was the backdrop the 38-year-old Puccini would bring one of his most popular and celebrated operas. In fact, it was Bohème, Tosca, and Madama Butterfly all three written in a row, and sometimes referred to as Puccini's trifecta, which secured his place in operatic history and made him a very wealthy man. Puccini was born in Lucca, located in Northern Italy in 1858, to a musical dynasty. His father and grandfather held the post of Maestro di Capella of the local cathedral, and it was assumed young Giacomo would follow in their footsteps. But he was drawn to the spectacle of grand opera after seeing a performance of Verdi's Aida as a teenager. Now, Puccini eventually goes on to study composition at the Milan Conservatory, where he roomed with fellow student Pietro Mascagni, the composer of Rusticana. I wonder if they dreamed of taking the opera world by storm. La Boheme centers around a group of young Bohemians experiencing love and loss in the Latin Quarter of Paris around the mid-19th century. Audiences have been drawn to the love story of Mimi and Rodolfo ever since, and Puccini infused this opera with the greatest arias and duets in the canon. Each one became a hit and can be heard by young singers at operatic auditions all around the world. Puccini's opera, like so many others, comes from literary source material, inspired by Scène de la Vie Boheme, or Scenes from Bohemian Life, by the French writer Henri Mouget. Mouget began his own writing career as a poet in Paris, but was often destitute and in ill health. His eventual novel, Scenes from Bohemian Life, began as a series of episodic short stories written for a magazine. These stories were semi-autobiographical, based on the author's early years and experiences. In the story, he cast himself as Rodolfo, and Mimi was inspired by his mistress, Lucille Louvet. 
His own friend group, which included poet Charles Baudelaire, rounded out the characters on the page, being a group of poor aspiring artists who referred to themselves as the water drinkers because they were too poor to afford wine. Bourget popularized this concept of bohemians as young poor artists. The term originally referred to the supposed geographic origins of Romani travelers, whose nomadic and out of the mainstream lifestyle seemed to Mourget as an appropriate comparison to the lives being led by out of the mainstream starving artists living in Paris and other big cities. Published in installments between 1847 and 1849, these short stories were adapted as a play and then re-released as a novel. While his work established what one writer calls the durable myth of the starving artist struggling to survive in a garret, ironically, it was the success of this novel which allowed Murger to move out of the Bohemian Latin Quarter and into a wealthier neighborhood. The journalist and classical radio host Diana Neal, in writing about Murger's most well-known work, has said, the term bohemian is still used to describe a certain type of artist or lifestyle, and many of us are a little nostalgic for our younger days. Some live the carefree, financially precarious, bohemian life well into middle age, but others of us, like Murger, reach a point where poverty no longer seems quite so romantic. In a well-heated living room, the modern, lapsed bohemian can read scenes of bohemian life while curled up on a plush couch sipping a fine Shiraz. Henri Murger wouldn't have had it any other way. Detroit Opera's artistic director, Yuval Sharon, marks his directorial debut in this production at the Detroit Opera House, having previously brought productions to various venues around the city of Detroit. It was announced La Boheme would be performed for the first time in history in reverse order. Sharon explained that we, having come out of the pandemic of the last two years, have experienced death and loss, and now with medical treatments are coming into an era of hope and love. Likewise, we will begin the opera with Mimi's death and end the evening with the first act, which embraces hope and a static first love. So this opera will actually be something new for all of us with this reverse order. You are exactly correct for those uh, old timers like myself uh, who have seen many, many productions of Bohem. It'll be something new doing it in reverse order. Uh, I remember we were, I was chatting earlier this week with the uh, set designer, John Conklin, and he talked about the, uh, the, how this particular idea came about. He said he'd been speaking with Yuval maybe 20 or so years ago when they were working at the New York City Opera, and they thought, hmm, I wonder if we, what it would it be like to do La Boheme in reverse? I guess they decided this uh, coming out of this pandemic was the perfect time uh, to finally take a look at this opera in this new way. I'm so excited to see this opera um, in a new way, in a surprising way. You know, like so many people, I've seen traditional bohems, um, but it's going to be wonderful to come out of this time of, of pause with something new and something that leaves us exiting the opera house feeling hopeful instead of tearful. You had mentioned uh, earlier about, uh, you know, of course, we opened the house uh, the Detroit Opera House 26 years ago with La Boheme, and now to sort of return back uh, after this pause of the last couple of seasons does bring things uh, back uh, full circle, I'd say. I think so too. And, it, you know, it's funny too, because, uh, you know, I've heard you all speak about the, the focus on youth, this kind of youthful recklessness really infusing this opera. Um, and La Boheme, like for so many, was one of the first operas that I knew and loved when I was a teenager. So it kind of, I'm, I'm excited to maybe return to that time a little bit uh, emotionally, you know, watching these, this young love and this young exuberance play out on stage. For you, Arthur, what was your journey with Boheme? 
So, but when I think I saw an early production, I would say probably back when I was in high school, you know, I'm from Chicago. And so we had the wonderful Lyric Opera of Chicago, uh, one of the major opera companies in the U.S. And uh, I just remember thinking, you know, I, I think I mentioned this earlier, you know, every tune is a hit. And so, you know, whether it's Quando Ben Vo or, or uh, See Me Chiama No Me Me uh, or the tenor aria that, you know, every one of these is a masterpiece. And so it was just one hit after another. And so uh, Puccini really hit it out of the park. But I'm really excited to actually finally see this piece uh, in reverse, sort of starting with this idea with uh, this death and loss and ending with this uh, hope of first love. We all we all remember what that's like our first time we have, you know, true love in our lives. So it's going to be very exciting. I think so. And and for me, I'm also really excited to have the chance to see um, just the, the absolute legendary George Shirley on the stage. I never got to see Mr. Shirley, you know, on stage. And so the chance to see him now inhabit this role of the wanderer. Um, I'm excited about the role itself. And I'm so excited to see uh, what Mr. Shirley is going to bring to it. No doubt about it. I first heard Mr. Shirley in person back in the 1980s. So it's been a few years. I was actually just, uh, I think, not too long out of high school again. Everything happened around my high school years. Uh, but uh, so it would be great to see him on the stage once again after, uh, after these, you know, several years. Absolutely. And, and speaking of the cast, we have two members of the cast who have joined us today to talk a little bit about uh, this opera, their roles in it, their careers, and what audiences might be able to expect from this newly conceived Labo M. We'll be joined today by Brandy Inez Sutton, who plays the fiery Musetta, uh, and also by Marlene Nahas, who takes on the role of Mimi in this new production. Arthur, do you want to go ahead and introduce our first guest? We are pleased to welcome the guest who hails from Huntsville, Alabama. She begins to find her voice in her college choir and is encouraged by an instructor to pursue a career in opera. After completing her bachelor's and master's in music, she goes on to make debuts in the U.S. and in Europe from the New York City Opera, Kennedy Center, Lincoln Center, Carnegie Hall, the National Symphony, Royal Danish Symphony, as well as bringing her artistry to Dresden, Hamburg State Opera, Geneva, Frankfurt, and she made her Metropolitan Opera debut as Clara in Porgy and Bess in the Much Tale production. We are just thrilled she is here. Welcome, Brandy Sutton. Thank you. Wow, you did your research. I love it. Of course. <laughs> well, we're no. so happy to have you, Brandy. And, you know, I wonder if we can just start. Um, can you tell us a little bit about your your early years um, and how you came to this journey in opera? How, how did you get the opera bug? I always listened to classical music growing up because, and not necessarily classical music that one would think, but I grew up at Oakwood University and they had this amazing choir called the Oakwood University. Well, then it was Oakwood College, Oakwood College Aeolians. And my grandmother, Mary Inez Langbooth, who my middle name is Inez named for, uh, she was the chair of the music department there. And so she would accompany this choir and my mother grew up around that music. My grandmother also played piano and organ. And so I kind of grew up around it, not necessarily opera, but because I always heard the Aeolians and they sang in more of a classical style than a gospel style. And I would find myself singing at home in my room to the, the radio station that would play the Aeolians. And I didn't even realize that that was, you know, an operatic way of singing until I started taking voice lessons. And my instructor at the time 
Um, I had auditioned for the Aeolians when I was um, at Oakwood College. I was a biology major and I didn't get into the Aeolians. And so I said, okay, there's no way I'm gonna not get my seat in that choir. So I started taking voice lessons and my voice teacher was like, okay, what are you doing? You need to be doing music. And she convinced me to leave the biology alone <laughs> and to pursue music. And so I'm so glad that I listened to her. That's amazing from biology to music, incredible. Yeah. You know, I'm still very interested in science, more so in the study of the mind, because, uh, you know, things change when you're young and in school, you have an idea of what you want to do, but things change. So I think I would still pursue, um, I wanted to do forensic psychology, and honestly, I would still do it today if I had the opportunity, so. Yeah, I, I think, and I know we need to get on with our questions, but I, um, I just appreciate your saying that, because I think for young people who feel they may be fixed into a path, um, I feel like being flexible when you're young and not being afraid to chase new dreams, you know, yeah. I think that's that's important for, for people yeah. to hear. Yes, you must, you must. Now, Brandy, you take up the role of uh, Musetta in our production of La Boheme. You're going to bring Musetta to uh, Spoleto in May. Have you sung the role before? You know, I have. I just uh, performed the role with Seattle Opera in October, this past October. But before that, I had not sung it since 2008 when I was in grad school. So it's it's been a very long time. But this music does not leave you. It does not leave your soul. Puccini, I almost know everybody's part. Puccini just sticks with you like that, sticks in your bones. What do you make of telling this story in reverse order? Uh, you know, at first, I honestly, I'm always one for an adventure. I can be a traditionalist sometimes, but I think if someone has a logical explanation for what they want to do and they can convince me of it, I'm all for it. Um, when I first heard about uh, doing it this way, I was like, sure, I'm on board. You know, I, I'm always down for innovative ideas because doing it the same way over and over, you know, it can get boring, especially for those who really know the story. Um, I don't know about people who would come and see it for their first time how they will react. But I'm sure those who have seen it over and over, I mean, I think it's still gonna be something new for those who have never seen it before and those who have seen it. And I think that is the best part about it because it's gonna be new for everyone. It's still sad and it invokes a lot of different emotions still, but you feel love. It's still a feeling of hope that you have at the end. And it's like accepting life as we know death is part of life but it's not death as finality. It's more so, it's just a part of this beautiful thing we have called life and love being the most important thing in life that can kind of overcome death in a way. I think that's so beautifully stated, Brandy. You know, I, I wonder, has this new way of presenting La Boheme, has it made you rethink this story or this char the characters in any way? Um, you know, not really, because it's still the same story. It's still the same music. You know, it's re reminiscent for me of a good Shonda Rhimes series where sometimes <laughs> she shows us the end first and then we reverse, you know, to get the lead up. And still for me, the characterization, it's the same. It's the same people. You're, you're just seeing my story in a different order. That's all. 
and I imagine with Musetta, she's quite the fiery, uh, wearing all these beautiful clothes and having such a great time. <laughs> yes. I mean, you know, it's so funny because for me, Musetta is kind of the opposite of my real personality. I say my personality is probably more of Mimi's personality. Um, I'm not, it, it takes a lot for me to really um, be fiery and feisty and all of those things that Musetta is. But, you know, it's, I had a similar uh, experience with the role of Bess because I've done both Bess and Clara and Clara is a totally different character from Bess and it took a lot for me to really dig into that character as well it was probably one of the hardest uh, roles for me to really figure out because I'm like I'm I'm not this person at all. <laughs> I have to ask you since you mentioned uh, Clara which was also uh, your Met debut uh, what was it like to have to sing one of the most familiar tunes at the first minute? You're the very, if someone is a minute late to this <laughs> opera, they will miss you. Uh, what is it like having to sing such a, an important song right at the beginning of the opera? You know, that was a blessing in itself because life had prepared me <laughs> for that moment. I can't imagine uh, having made my debut singing anything else. And I know that sometimes there's a negative stigma attached to singing for and best for many African-American singers, but I had sung the role maybe a maybe hundred times. I had probably performed it before making that debut. So it was only fitting that that be my debut because there was no, okay, I have to remember this note. I have to think about this rhythm. I have to think about this staging. That's one of those shows you can literally throw me in two days before opening night and I will make it up. <laughs> so there were no nerves. I was completely prepared. And so, I mean, that, that was a breeze. I would much rather it be summertime than <laughs> anything else to make my debut with there. Now, Brandy, issues of justice have been important to you as you've done a good deal of work with the Equal Justice Initiative at the National Memorial for Peace and Justice. Can you talk a bit about that and your involvement? Yes. So I don't want, you know, I don't want people to get the wrong idea. I haven't done the groundwork that the Equal Justice Initiative is doing. And though I would love to, but what I have been a part of is just an offering my voice in any way that I can. Um, Brian Stevenson, who uh, is a founder of the Equal Justice Initiative and who many people know, um, an amazing lawyer and who has done amazing groundwork to erect this museum, um, the Legacy Museum from enslavement to mass incarceration, which is in Montgomery, Alabama. I don't even know how he heard me. He said one, one day he heard me and he said, I've got to have this voice in the museum. And so I got a call asking if I would come and sing the spiritual Lord, how come me here? And I was put into, I guess, what would be slave clothing or their idea of it at the time. And I was put in front of a green screen and I had to sing the spiritual and they have now put me as a hologram in the museum. So it's pretty cool to be immortalized, but even more so to be able to sing and to express the thoughts of, I'm sure what many mothers thought um, during that time, you know, Lord, how come me here? They treat me so mean here. There's no freedom here. They stole my children away. Um, it's a, really a spiritual that is very near and dear to my heart being a mother myself. And so 
I, I could not have said, said no to that, to that project. And I've also participated in uh, one of their annual galas. So just offering my voice in any way that I can. I wish I could be of a more powerful uh, help in, in really making a difference. Well, those are incredible things to do, Brandy. I mean, to lend your work and as you say, your voice to a project like that is certainly no small feat. And, you know, it kind of brings me um, a little bit organically to a question I, I wanted to ask, you know, as we emerge from this time of pandemic um, and as we're in this space of, you know, important increased calls for racial justice, you know, I wonder what your thoughts are on how you see opera as being relevant and responsive to this time that we find ourselves in. What this pandemic has really shown me is that we are supposed to rely on each other. You know, there are certain countries that have greater resources than we do that we need. And we have resources that they may need. And we're supposed to help each other. We're supposed to rely on each other, you know. And I think that with opera, I see it changing, which is a good thing. Um, honestly, I, I have to say I was very excited when I saw this cast because so often have I been the only African-American in a cast of most standard rep operas that I have participated in. And so it was very refreshing to see that I was not the only one. It was like, wow, things are really changing. And I think that we still have a long way to go. I think that uh, this is definitely a huge step in the right direction, what this opera house is doing, um, because each opera house is individual and they will have to make these decisions on their own. And not only that, but the stories that are told, um, more modern operas coming out. I think how we even stage some of the more traditional pieces, there are many, many things that can be done to just open it to, to everyone. But yeah, I think it's more so about the people and, and the decisions that we make and realizing that we have to rely on each other and, and open ourselves to wanting to help one another. Fantastic. My last question for you, Brandy, uh, your next role is that of uh, Adina and Le Lisier d'Amore, the bel canto opera by Donizetti. Just wondering, what are the challenges, maybe vocally and dramatically, going from bel canto to verismo, or actually in this case, verismo to bel canto, in just a, 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 few, week, a few weeks' time? Um, you know, for me, bel canto is going to be a, a huge relief <laughs> to switch to. I mean, um, it sits in the voice for me exactly where I want it to sit. It moves how, I mean, my voice has amazing coloratura. So I'm, I'm very excited. Um, to, and I've been practicing it the entire time I've been here. So it shouldn't be a, a huge transition. Well, Miss Brandy Sutton, we can't wait to see your Musetta. And perhaps you will see you again in a bel canto opera in the future. But thank you so much for being here and being our guest. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. It was my pleasure. Arthur, we are joined by La Boheme's other leading lady today. Why don't you uh, tell us a little bit about who we'll be hearing from next? 
We are thrilled to welcome the soprano who hails from Houston, Texas. She completes her musical studies at Oklahoma City University and Indiana University, and she begins a series of prestigious young artist programs at the Washington National Opera, Santa Fe, Lyric Opera of Kansas City, Central City Opera, and the Merrillet Program at the San Francisco Opera. She does so in a wide range of roles from Pamina, Violetta, Fiordeligi, Susanna, uh, Rosalinda, in uh, Deflator Mouse. Uh, Detroiters saw her just last month as uh, Christina in Rodriguez's opera, Frida. Uh, please welcome Marlene Nahas. Thank you for having me. You know, I always want to start out kind of looking at the early years. As you approached your journey and career, how did music come to you as a young person? My parents, um, as an effort to keep my sisters and I using the Spanish language when they moved to the United States, they actually enrolled us in the church choir. And when my sister started, I was like three years old, but I would come with them every Sunday. And my parents kind of realized that I, I guess I had a liking of singing, but they didn't think anything of it. <laughs> and then when I went to high school, I fell in love with musical theater and then ended up pursuing that in college, actually. Fantastic. Uh, Marlene, you sang Mimi with the uh, National Symphony Orchestra, and I'm wondering, is Mimi one of the roles you've done frequently on the stage? Actually, this will be my first time performing the role of Mimi from start to finish in front of an audience. With that said, it's been a work in progress since probably the first day I started working on opera as an art form. Um, it was the first aria that I ever learned was Don de Lieta. Mm -hmm. And um, so it's been with me for many, many years, even though I haven't gotten to um, sing that part. And I actually have been in Bohem as pretty much every other character that a woman could play. <laughs> <laughs> now, when you heard the production was going to be performed in reverse order, what was your first thought? My first thought was how interesting to finish the night with a high C. Um, <laughs> Because as you know, the end of the final of the first act, which is now in reverse, is the two lovers leave and on this beautiful climactic high C off the stage. And indeed. It's sort of a historically scary moment for singers, but you know what? I was really into the challenge. And um, to be honest, I think it's it's time that we take these beautiful operatic standards and kind of play with them. I think that, you know, Puccini would have loved that. I think to keep things relevant, you sort of have to play around and refresh and try new approaches. Yeah, yeah, I, I think that there's there's such a spirit of adventure, I feel like going into this, this new look at Bohem, and I think that I'm certainly hearing you kind of say that now. I, you know, I wonder, has this new way of presenting La Bohem, has it made you rethink this piece, the stories, the characters at all? Absolutely. One of the biggest things that happens when you turn an opera on its head like this and turn it around is that you can't really lean on any sort of um, conventions or tracking. For example, every time you kind of start day one of Bohème, usually you know kind of how it's going to go and the blocking sits sort of in the same places on the stage and you know that the Café Montmuse will have a table and there will be a broken plate. Um, <laughs> however, with things this way, we sort of had to say, why do they always do that? Why did Maria Callas take time every time here? Why is it written in the orchestra instead of just leaning on the conventions that we've heard in previous recordings? Can I ask this now, what has been your process for preparing to do the opera in this reverse order? I imagine the vocal and dramatic demands, of course, are now different. As we spoke earlier about now, your death scene is at the very beginning of the opera. Yes. 
Um, if you can imagine the most adrenaline and nerve wracking, you know, moments right before a show and then having to come on in just a very faint sounding, um, almost like dying singing. I mean, it's pretty, it's pretty hard as funny as it sounds to sound weak when you're that excited, you know? Um, so I would say it's more of a mental game. It really is just, um, trying to remember to stay calm. Um, and really just lean on what you know and lean on um, what you know about the characters and the music. Has anything surprised you in this process? Maybe you had a thinking coming in, it was going to be one way, but did anything surprise you about this process thus far? I think what surprises me the most is the resilience of my colleagues. <laughs> I mean, we are all, <laughs> everyone is just you know, balancing plates and, you know, cups and knives and everything and does it so beautifully. Just even after the pandemic, sort of re-remembering like, wow, operatic performers are really athletes. Like sometimes, you know, you have to be on, you know, on the ground, sprawled out and singing a really high note. And it's, it's just, the process is, is quite athletic. Um, so I would say that that was a surprise again, like, oh my gosh, I really, I've got to be, you know, physically warmed up too. <laughs> So next year, you are due to take up the role of the other soprano in La Boheme, the flirtatious Musetta. Um, what are the challenges, both vocally and dramatically, to make that shift? So mainly with the role, roles of Musetta and Mimi, actually, are, are fairly similar in terms of vocal tessitura. I would say they're, they're different in the sense that the energy with which you deliver the role has to be different, for example. One person is this bombastic character who, you know, is known for sort of vacuuming the room, which would be, be Musetta. Um, and Mimi is, is quite the opposite as someone who is quite sick and a sort of um, through line of peace in my mind um, through the opera. So it's really just reshifting the approach to just how you interpret the character that I focus on when shifting between the two. Do you think you'll keep a steady diet as time goes on going back and forth between these two ladies? <laughs> well, I have to say, out of any opera, this would have to be my favorite to perform. And if I have to perform Parpignol, I would do it just to be in this opera because I find it to be such a beautiful and resilient work. So, I mean, to be honest, if a theater's putting it on and they want me, I will, I will be happy to be there. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. Can you tell us about uh, a bit about the newly conceived character of the Wanderer uh, and what it's been like to work with the legendary tenor George Shirley? I have to say there are very few things that are as intimidating as singing directly into George Shirley and Christine Gerke's faces. Um, two amazing, uh, iconic people in the opera industry of which I have been admiring for many years. Um, George Shirley is just an icon. Um, someone who has paved the way for all of us to be where we are today in the operatic field. And um, he's just so fun and lighthearted and complimentary. And I, as a person in the opera, for us, it feels very serendipitous that he would be the one guiding us through this journey. And I think to the opera goer, it'll be really interesting for them if they know who George Shirley is to see a Rodolfo watching the life of another Rodolfo. Yeah, that's exciting. I can't, I can't wait to see. 
you know, Arthur mentioned in your introduction, you were here last month with us uh, in Detroit, appearing in the opera Frida about the famed Mexican artist. And I've also heard you mention that you are both of Mexican and Lebanese descent. And I wonder if you can talk a little bit about, um, you know, telling a story like that of Frida, you know, this iconic Mexican woman through the medium of opera. What was that experience for you? I have to say that the experience was, I mean, unlike any other, the experience was extremely fulfilling for me. It's not um, every day that I get to watch an opera or a classical music piece about either of the cultures that I come from. And um, when I first listened to the music from Frida, I mean, I was hearing music that I heard in church growing up, you know, Spanish mass, um, little motives through the orchestra, threaded through really, I mean, really complex and beautiful music that also, you know, carries its operatic orchestral roots, you know? Um, and I just, I, I have to say that it was, it, it gave me a sense of pride for my culture and also sort of opened my eyes to a lot of things that I might not have known growing up in the United States. Fantastic. Thank you. I would just ask kind of as a, as a last sort of question, Marlon, um, you know, is there anything else that you want to share with, with us or with Detroit Opera audiences about uh, the experience of this new Bohem? Sure. I guess my, my suggestion to the audience when they come in, if they have seen Bohem, just sit back and enjoy the ride and forget about what you've heard and don't expect anything, but rather just be you know, taken away by the experience because it really does allow you to kind of focus on the text and the things that matter. And if you've never seen Bohem, then I would say expect a night of young, goofy friends who are going through some really tough stuff and trying to figure it out. I think it's it's a really a relevant story to what we are all going through every day. You know, um, life is not easy. <laughs> and And I just think it's an enjoyable night at the theater as well. Marlon, thank you so much for being here with us. Thank you for sharing all of that. Thank you so much. You guys have been so wonderful. And thank you, too, to everyone listening to our Glimpse into Detroit Opera's production of La Boheme. We hope to see you as we reopen the Detroit Opera House with this production, which opens April 2nd and runs through April 10th. To purchase tickets to La Boheme or to find more information on the production, visit our website at DetroitOpera.org. You can also connect with us on social media, on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Thank you again for joining us today, and we'll see you at the opera. <laughs>